Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll discuss our first week of coverage of the testimony of defendant Kyle Rittenhouse, including the full direct examination by his defense lawyers and the first portion of cross-examination by Prosecutor Thomas Binger. My conversation with Abby Smith is coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thanks for coming back. Hi, Carrie. Good to talk to you again. This is the beginning of the big part of this trial, the testimony of Kyle Rittenhouse. Yes, I was very, very excited for this. Going into this, you know, you and I spoke about the wisdom of Mark Richards and Corey Shirofsky calling Rittenhouse to the stand. I shared with you something that I found, a statement that Richards made, which was that in anticipation of the trial, they ran two different sets of mock trials, one with Rittenhouse testifying in front of a mock jury and the other without Rittenhouse testifying. And apparently, according to Richards, it was a slam dunk that the case was much more effective when Rittenhouse took the stand than when he didn't. What did you make of that? And what did you make of the decision to put Rittenhouse on the stand? Well, it's interesting and not surprising that the defense had both the inclination and the resources to put the case on before a mock jury. So that was smart. That was good defense lawyering, consistent with what folks do who have the means these days. I would think it would have been a very big decision It is always a very big decision whether to call your client or not because it's an out-of-control experience. On a good day, your client far surpasses your expectations and or previous performances if you've mooted the case enough and suddenly is superb on the stand for the first time. Mostly it doesn't happen that way. You know, a not very well-prepared defendant will suddenly blurt something out or suddenly depart from the plan, usually on cross-examination. And this was a case that went in as a very weak case for the prosecution. And I would have thought that the defense would have deliberated long and hard about whether they needed to call Mr. Rittenhouse. You know, apparently the results of the mock jury experience was that they needed to call him or they would do better if they called him. I'm not convinced the state of Wisconsin would have gotten a 
conviction even had the defense not called the defendant. Right. I also understand that they were concerned about the pretrial publicity and its impact on any potential jury and that they felt Rittenhouse would blunt any prejudice that the jurors may have had because of that pretrial publicity. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, conventional wisdom about calling one's client in a criminal case has also changed some over the years, I should say. The convention maybe 30 years ago was err on the side of not calling a defendant if the case could be won without him or her. It's cleaner. But studies have shown that sometimes if you have an appealing client, an appealing defendant, putting them on the stand is a way of ensuring that the prosecution will have to meet its burden of proof. It's a way of sort of illustrating, literally embodying the presumption of innocence. And they had what turns out to be a very appealing client in Kyle Rittenhouse. His age, his manner of speaking, a certain youthful guilelessness, I thought, kind of came across And I don't know whether that was the product of a lot of preparation or whether that's just Rittenhouse's personality, but he came across as a kid and not a very streetwise kid. Well, that's a really good segue into the direct examination itself. At the beginning of the direct, Mark Richards elicited from Rittenhouse four important points, as I could enumerate them. Number one was that he had deep Kenosha connections. Number two, that he was a police explorer. Number three, that he was a firefighter EMT cadet. And number four, that he was cleaning graffiti the day of the shootings. All of those things speak to his benevolent intent that he was a kid because as an explorer and a cadet, it emphasizes his youthfulness. He also had law enforcement, firefighting, public service connections. And then finally, cleaning graffiti seemed to get right to the heart of why he was there. He wasn't there to do violence. He was there to help people. Right. I mean, my shorthand for how they portrayed him with those questions is that this kid's a Boy Scout. I mean, he's like the all-American explorer plus cadet plus cleaning graffiti. You know, everything about him called out caricature of a white Boy Scout. And then they moved on to establish his connection to the Kindries and to the car source business. They were limited, but they came again from benevolent intent. He'd seen the destruction. He'd commiserated on their loss and he offered to help in any way he could. Right. I mean, that came across well and seemed perfectly plausible. You don't have to know somebody well to be a good citizen. And that's how he was portraying himself, is that he was there to help. And, you know, even better than helping somebody you know is helping a stranger, right? That's even more generous, more beneficent. And then finally, in that first episode, we covered Rittenhouse telling the jury not only did they have permission to be there, but they were actually invited to be there. And the proof being that Nick Smith had keys to the place. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
In the second part of our conversation, Abby and I begin by taking a look back at our second episode of Rittenhouse testimony coverage, including Kyle Rittenhouse's apparent panic attack on the witness stand. Moving on to the second episode that we presented this week, we had a bunch of testimony elicited by the defense that sort of helped Rittenhouse line up his story consistent with a self-defense plea. And those pieces of testimony were that Rosenbaum threatened to kill him twice, that he saw Rosenbaum and Joshua Zeminski knocking over a porta potty that he was offering medical help. They owned the lie to McGinnis and essentially Deflected it by implying that it was a shorthand for first aid training, that he was stopped by police from getting back to the car source business. He got a call from Dominic Black saying that there was a fire and there were cars being demolished down at the car source lot on 63rd Street, and that he grabbed a fire extinguisher, ran down there, Rosenbaum ambushed him, and then Zeminski ordered Rosenbaum to kill him. And that's when Kyle Rittenhouse had his panic attack leading the judge to call for a break. What did you make of that sequence of testimony, Abby? It was powerful for the defense. That was one of the better parts of the storytelling that was really effectively employed by the defense. You know, I was waiting for the tears and I was waiting with some skepticism to see whether they seemed genuine or more like crocodile tears, whether they seemed more like an expression of Kyle Rittenhouse's fear at the time or anxiety now about having been caught and being on trial. I mean, these are the things that you kind of look out for. And I thought the tears were very, very well timed and seemed genuine. And it seemed like he was sobbing and trying to catch his breath. I can't imagine that it wasn't affecting From what I could hear, and of course I wasn't live in the courtroom to see it, it had a ring of genuineness that he was kind of back there in time reliving how scared he felt. I couldn't agree more that he seemed genuine in his reliving the trauma of feeling his life under threat. His anxiety at being ambushed seemed like the best evidence we've heard so far that he was in fact ambushed. And that whether or not Joshua Zeminski actually said to Joseph Rosenbaum, get him, kill him, it didn't really matter because it all seemed to go together. And his dread at possible imminent maiming or death seemed genuine. To me, too. And it makes a closing argument that much easier. I mean, sometimes the lawyer at the end of a case has to generate and convey the kind of emotion that a client with a claim of self-defense felt. The lawyer doesn't have to do that now. The lawyer has to say, you saw him. You can picture so easily what he felt, how he was at that moment, and why it was he felt he had no choice. They did a really good job with that. Moving on to our third episode of the week, a recomposed Kyle Rittenhouse got back on the stand after the break, and Mark Richards led him through the series of events between the moments just before he shot Joseph Rosenbaum through to his turning himself into the Antioch Police Department. And the chain of events, as I was able to distill them, according to Rittenhouse, were as follows. Zeminski says to Rosenbaum, get him and kill him. The item that 
Rosenbaum threw that turns out to have been a plastic bag, Rittenhouse thought was a chain because he'd seen Rosenbaum with a chain earlier in the evening. There were about 100 people around the cars in that car source lot. And so Rittenhouse said he felt trapped in that corner. Rosenbaum lunged for him. He fired four shots. The crowd had dispersed. He walked around. He saw Richie McGinnis tending to Rosenbaum. He called Dominic Black. He heard Joshua and Kelly Zeminski shouting to kill him. As he was running, Anthony Huber hit him with a skateboard once. A rock hit him. He fell. So-called jump kick man kicked him twice. He fired two shots. Huber hit him again in the neck and tried to grab the gun. He fired a shot. Grosskreutz approaches him, hands in the air, claims he did not re-rack. Grosskreutz pointed his gun down towards him. He fired one shot. Then he ran up to try to turn himself in. When he wasn't able to do that, he went to the nearest police department that he could find, which was back in his hometown of Antioch, and that's where he turned himself in. What did you make of that string of questioning, Abby? Well, I thought the defense did a very nice job of making it be one incident, one frantic, frightening, fast-moving incident that first there's Rosenbaum, then there's Huber, then there's Grosskreutz, all kind of happening, all coming at him at once, this cornered, frightened teenager. And that's effective because it's really important in this case that the prosecution make each shooting separate and deliberate and requiring all of the elements of the offense, when they're captured all together like that, it feels like one ongoing threat. And that would be consistent with the narrative the defense is telling. The promptness with which Kyle Rittenhouse surrendered in Illinois is also a very good fact for Mr. Rittenhouse. Any delay could be argued as consciousness of guilt, that, you know, you don't turn yourself in for a long time, you go into hiding, or you take your sweet time, or you wait for them to get you. That You know, that's something the prosecution could exploit. They can't do anything. He tried not once, but twice to turn himself in. That's the behavior, if I'm the defense lawyer, I'm going to argue is consistent with an innocent conscience. You mentioned that you had some issues with the defense questioning, or you felt that they could have sharpened their angle a bit. What did you mean by that? I did, yes. I thought the witness, Mr. Rittenhouse, was terrific. He gets an A. The defense... You know, they prevail in the end, sure, but it was not a seamless direct examination. It was not as effective as it could have been. Here's how you start the direct examination in a case like this. You know, we've got two killings and one very serious shooting. You don't start with a lengthy background of Mr. Rittenhouse to humanize him. You start where the jury is with a really strong assertion of self-defense and a really strong denial that he, Mr. Rittenhouse, used his AR-15 for any purpose other than to protect his life. And it was clumsy in the beginning. There were too many leading questions by the defense. Instead of asking the why question, and the setup is pretty easy, that direct examination, in my opinion, should have begun this way. Did you shoot three people on that night? Yes, I did. Why? And give Rittenhouse a chance to explain it right from the start. I've talked about this before with you. There's a theory in trial advocacy called the theory of primacy and recency. 
which states that the stuff you hear first and last is the most powerful. That's the stuff a listener will hang on to. In a murder case like this, I wanted more of that in the beginning. And then you can take a breath and go back in time and humanize Rittenhouse. Talk about his background. Make him into the Boy Scout they need to make him into. Let the jury get to know him as a kid. Then take them through. And they did a very nice job, though, of constructing the narrative and taking him slowly through the events leading up to when he felt he had no choice. You know, they did that nicely. I think... Likewise, at the end of the direct examination, they sort of ended at a strange, not very important point. I think they could have ended it with a kind of wrapped up statement of self-defense plus regret that anybody had to die. Would have been a nice way to tie this together. You know, you can lawfully defend yourself, but still feel bad that you've taken a life. And I think that that would have been very powerfully expressed by Rittenhouse, given a chance. Moving on to the beginning of the prosecution's cross-examination. Again, I've enumerated what I was able to distill the main points that Binger brought up in questioning Rittenhouse in this first section. He began with what Rittenhouse's intent was on that night. Then he tried to get him to acknowledge that he rehearsed his testimony based on seeing videos and based on being able to put together other facts that he didn't know on the night of the shootings. And for that effort, he got a quick reprimand from the judge. Then they went into the purchase of the gun by Dominic Black and what he knew, and they got kind of mired in a conversation about FOID cards and what the laws were in Illinois and Wisconsin. Binger asked him about why he chose the AR-15. He asked him about video games. He asked him what his place of residence was. And then he showed the homepage for Rittenhouse's TikTok account where it said, four doors, more whores, and trying to be famous. And then he tried to undermine his testimony about his fire cadet training and whether that meant he was actually part of the fire department. What did you make of all that, Abby? Well, we could go through them one by one and I'd give you a thumbs up or thumbs down, mostly thumbs down for what the prosecutor achieved so many missed opportunities. You know, first of all, just like the defense had a hard time asking non-leading questions on direct examination, the prosecutor had a hard time asking leading, well-crafted cross-examination questions on the cross-examination. It's not a time to learn stuff. It's not, the prosecutor doesn't want to get into Kyle Rittenhouse's forays into being a cadet and doing ride-alongs with firefighters. He shouldn't be asking any why questions or what questions questions, he should be making points. I think Kyle Rittenhouse won the exchange between him and Binger. In in my view, and maybe this is the worst kind of Monday morning quarterbacking, but I think Binger should have started this cross-examination with a TikTok picture and account. That's just a gorgeous way to take Rittenhouse down a peg or two. Why not put that picture up on a screen Leave it lingering there as you, you know, pull your chair back and get up out of your seat to conduct the cross-examination and really spend some time. That's you. You posted this on social media. You're wearing a semi-automatic rifle, an AR-15, with a strap. And there's some words there. Those were your words. Bruh trying to be famous and let that sit for a while and then say, gee, you've kind of accomplished that goal, haven't you? And then confront him on 
various things, but confront him. Cross-examination is a time to confront and test credibility. And that was what the prosecutor had to do. Once Rittenhouse is on the stand, credibility is directly at issue. And he needed to take him down. And he just didn't do it. He just didn't do it. I mean, I think the judge made some poor rulings. The judge on one occasion said that that wasn't a question. You're putting words into his mouth. That's the definition of cross-examination is putting words into a witness's mouth. They are not really questions. They are they are short assertions of fact that if you need to, you can put a comma and say correct or isn't that right? Isn't that so? But you don't have to. You can just put a question mark after it. The judge tied Binger's hands a little bit. Binger reacted fine. He he used the format that the judge seemed to want. There were other objections too. Binger didn't handle well. The hearsay objections were kind of silly. This is all about what's in Rittenhouse's head. Everything is fair game because Rittenhouse's state of mind is critically relevant in this case. But I just don't think it was a well-constructed cross. He lost the residency thing long ago. You know, the kid on direct says, my dad lives here. My mom lives there. These are places fairly close. They're right over the border. And all that stuff about the firefighter, oh my God, he gave Kyle Rittenhouse so much airtime to talk about his amazing extracurriculars in public service. How is that helpful to the prosecution? You know, get in and get out. You are not and have never been an emergency medical technician, an EMT. That is not accurate, is it, sir? You are a lifeguard at age 17, right? Like just bing, 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 and then get rid of it. It's not the biggest point in the case. I think that he could have dealt with the issue of Kyle Rittenhouse rehearsing his testimony based on knowledge he got after August 25th without violating his right against self-incrimination, his decision not to give a statement until today. He could have easily done that by just saying, is that testimony based on what you felt at the time or what you've learned since August 25th? Right. I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't have the prosecutor ask it in exactly the way you just did, because you don't want to give the witness a chance to explain. I think you want to point out and go down methodically the various videos that exist and point out that you've now seen this and you've now seen that and you've now heard from this witness and now heard from that witness. That's not inappropriate. The question that was inappropriate is, this is the first time you're speaking about things. No, that's objection sustained. That's unfairly commenting on a person's Fifth Amendment right to silence. But there's actually case law that allows prosecutors to point out to a jury that a defendant has sat through an entire trial, that the defendant's the last person to testify and has seen everything else. By pointing that out, that says it all. You don't need to ask the ultimate question and say, that influenced you or that is the source of your testimony. No, leave that to the jury. Argue it in closing. It's a fair inference. But just point out the barrage of information that Rittenhouse has been privy to now, and most importantly, the other testimony and evidence at trial, that he sat there and watched keenly, attentively. This is the kind of thing where I would think a really good prosecutor's office would have mooted this cross many times, would have had various colleagues play Rittenhouse. You can imagine, you know, how he might sound, but in a much more methodical, tight way, making points and tripping him up, you know, pointing out some inconsistencies. Uh, so far, none of that has happened. So far, you know, a 17-year-old kid has gotten the better of an experienced prosecutor. That must really sting. Well, I have a feeling we're about to see a few more be- things in our next episode, Abby. We might start to feel like a public spanking, frankly. All right. Well, have a great week and uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. Me too. Thanks so much, Carrie. 
That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we continue our look at the testimony of defendant Kyle Rittenhouse. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.